This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Recently, I was at Hillsdale College, where I teach two weeks a year to the fantastic students there, and I came across a young woman who had had a story to tell but it wasn't her own. It was her mother's. Emily Barnum's brother, Braden, committed suicide in 2013. Today, Emily and her mom, Jill, bring us a story of recovery and reconciliation. Here's Emily. My mom sits next to me on the couch and with her eyes squeezed tightly shut, recites the following prayer from memory. Be thou triune God, in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy nearer presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. Thus we will have closer communion with thee and with thee, our loved ones. Thus we will come to know that there is no death, only a veil divides, thin as gossamer. This is my mom's response to the question, how did you get to where you are now? This prayer has provided her a personal theology of grief, a kind of map for the devastation of the loss of her son to suicide. Her 20-year-old son, Braden Barnum, died in a violent high-speed car crash in October 2013. Jill Barnum was in her mid-40s, a wife, mother of three, and part-time nurse. She was at the hospital working an evening shift in the immediate care when she received the news of her son's death. How does someone even begin to recover from this kind of loss? I look at my mom six years later and see a hopeful, even joyful individual, busy leading yoga classes and facilitating writing workshops, crafting her own sometimes hilarious and sometimes tear-inciting poems. The most amazing quality I see in my mom is her ability to forgive. But this ability to forgive is something that has had to be intentionally cultivated. It's been a process, a long, challenging, messy, but very inspiring process. Really on every level, it has been a pilgrimage, one that is very much still ongoing. In the first months after Bray's death, mom recounts developing very difficult emotions. Right after Bray died, we um, were just going through the motions, getting by. Then about four months later, we went on a family vacation. And it was a vacation of four of us instead of a family of five. And I believe that's when when the uh, permanence of Bray's decision started to set in. And that's when I started to really feel sad and then quickly very angry. My mom was raised in an intense conservative religious setting. 
And she sees this as one of the contributing factors to feeling an immense amount of pressure to be a perfect person, a perfect mom. So I never deluded myself. I never thought I was a perfect person, perfect mom, or that we were perfect parents. But we worked hard to raise our kids to be good Christians. In fact, I wanted my kids to love God in a authentic way. It wasn't even just going through the motions, but we did. We, uh, we attended church regularly, we studied the Bible, we taught the Bible, we memorized scripture and so on. So when Bray died, my faith and my mothering were on trial. We had fallen into the mistake of believing that when you're doing things right, trying to do the right thing, be good people, that the bad things don't happen to good people. Suicide death, perhaps more than any, more than other kinds of loss, elicit a lot of guilt. I needed, I learned early on uh, that my grief process would be separating out mothering and faith from mental illness and suicidal ideation as a cause for his decision, for his decision to die, to kill himself, to blame mothering. Looking back, both my mom and my dad had channeled all their energy into doing everything right. The way had been set out before them and they had followed it, but it had not worked. Nothing, not the careful parenting, the psychiatrists, the counselors, the meds, had worked to save their son from his mental illness and suicidal ideations. Rebellion had never been an option for my mom, but now it was the only thing left. She remembers going for runs and literally yelling at God. I would go out for a run and I was yelling at God. If you can't tell Bray that I love him, that I'm sorry, and that I miss him, then if you can't give that to me, I want nothing from you. Nothing to do with you, God. And that was the mother, that's Emily's mother, Jill. And this suicide, well, it shattered the family and shattered, well, at least the mom's faith and faith in her own mothering capabilities and capacities. And by the way, suicide is a subject we've touched on before and will continue to because it, it haunts and hurts so many people. So many people are affected by this. There probably aren't many families in America who haven't in some way experienced this. When we come back, Jill and Emily Barnum's story, coming to terms with their brother and son's death by suicide in 2013, Braden, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with the story of Jill Barnum here on Our American Stories, the mother of Emily Barnum, who's a student at Hillsdale College, a young woman I met while teaching there this past year. When we last heard from her, Jill was doubting her faith in the midst of losing her own son to suicide. Here's the mom, here's Jill. As time went on, my anger and really my hatred, hatred of myself, hatred of my family, hatred of my background, um, just grew and uh, carried around an an enormous sense of failure. Um, My thoughts became circular and destructive, obsessing about what I could have done differently or how I could have helped Bray. But there must have been something in there um, in me that knew that I needed to do something different. So I began planning this trip into the woods. The way out of consuming bitterness first emerged in the form of a trail map which my mom found in a sporting goods store. I don't know why I went into that sporting goods store, but once there, I found my way to a, a map rack and a map for the Jordan River Valley um, got my attention. And I recognized it as a backpacking trip Um, in northern Michigan, just several hours from where I live. And I remember that I just almost automatically decided that is something I'm going to do. That is something I'm going to make happen. And I've, I've never backpacked before. So, yeah, it just became something new to be consumed with other than grief and anger. For my mom, backpacking became a way of replacing the negative thoughts. My mom understood that there was no way to undo what had happened, Braden ending his life and any role she had played in that. But she knew that her obsessive thoughts were not in service to pursuing the truest and fairest narrative. Out on the trail, my mom fell into prayer. This kind of prayer was very meditative and repetitious. It corresponded with what she was actually physically doing. Uh, walking and walking and walking. She was out in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, with just a pack and a journal, her thoughts and God. So as my foot, my boot hit the trail, I paired each footfall with a phrase. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. And walking became very methodical, very meditative. Uh, With each click of my pole, each footfall, the squeaking of my backpack. I love the sound of a squeaking backpack. But the circular and angry thoughts were becoming less and less prevalent. And I was becoming more peaceful out on the trail. It was the first anniversary of her son's death when my mom came back from the trail and the reality had not changed. She was still mourning the loss of her son and would be in some way for the rest of her life. 
but she had found a tangible way to help herself move forward. Somewhere in this process, my mom began accompanying my dad and me to a new church where there was a fresh message of love and grace. I went off to college, but when I came back to visit, my mom was attending a church book group. This was when she encountered the prayer which was to become her personal theology of grief. It was tucked away in one of the group's readings on Celtic spirituality. The church was preparing to go on a pilgrimage to Scotland, to Iona, Scotland, and so we were, we were reading through um, some material on Celtic spirituality, and my eyes fell on that middle stanza. If it be your perfect will, will you tell them how much we love them and miss them? I immediately recognized in that stanza the same ideas, the same instinct of what I wanted to say to God that I was yelling on the road as I ran down the road and the same thing that I was repetitively um, saying in a mantra and a prayer on the hiking trail. And here it was in this published official prayer written by a ordained pastor from another land, from another part of the world. And I was so relieved. I don't think I was looking for affirmation, but I was so relieved to see that somebody else had the same instinct and that he was respectful and legit. <laughs> so it, it was just affirming and that's where I started. That was the beginning of making this prayer my own. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. The next time my mom went into the woods, her journal had this prayer written inside the front cover. She had walked and prayed, and as she did so, the prayer became a part of who she was. My mom was trailing miles, but the real feat was the quiet and steady healing of her spirit. This prayer offered a way for my mom to love Braden now, first because it allowed her to say what she wished she could have said more often when he was alive, but it also invited her to do something after what felt like a million missed chances. If I could go back, I would have been more, I would be more comforting for Bray. I would have hugged him more, of course tell him that I loved him, and just listen more. His suffering for me was an indictment of my, my mothering or our parenting. And there was something, something selfish about that because I made it about myself sometimes, but I don't know if anything would have been different. And that's a question I'll never be able to answer, of course. But I do know that I wish I'd been more comforting. After the second stanza, my mom entered the theology of the prayer laid out in the first stanza. Be thou triune God in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy near presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. I struggled to pray into and believe that first stanza. 
because it implies in family and friends, church or biological, harmony and connectedness. And I did not have capacity for harmony and connectedness. So as I worked to become more emotionally healthy and I healed that first stanza, became easier to pray. As my mom continued to move forward in her healing, she moved beyond the first and middle stanzas of the prayer to the last, which encouraged her to love Bray now through loving the part of the one family still on earth. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. The, the middle stanza that drew me in was comforting. The first stanza was teaching me to forgive. And so then when I moved on to the final stanza, strengthen us to go on, it was teaching me how to go on living. I don't know if I was doing any more different serving than I've ever done before, but the activities I did to connect with and love other people were dedicated and still are dedicated to Bray. I really do believe that. As we serve, we're closer to God. And in being closer to God, we're closer to our loved ones. And a special thanks to Jill Barnum for telling her story. It's a tough one to tell when a son commits suicide. And a special thanks to Emily Barnum, the daughter who really wanted this to happen and really serving her mom. And what a triumph this story was of, of forgiveness over grief. And in the end, a path back to God and to family. By the way, I'm sorry, I love you, and I miss you. Well, those, those three sentences can't be stated enough in your life. If we learned anything from this story, that's it. If I could go back, Jill said, I'd be more comforting. I'd just listen more. Braden's suffering was an indictment of my parenting. And that was selfish because that was about me. What I do wish in the end is that I was more comforting. The Barnum Family Story, here on Our American Story. back with our American stories and now our own Joey Cortez brings us the story of an engineer who was part of various technological breakthroughs at the very start of Silicon Valley's ascent. There's always one guy who you love to hate. We had that guy in our work group. You're listening to Richard Jordan, a talented engineer reminiscing on the shenanigans during his career at Hewlett Packard in the 1970s. And those people are the ones that just don't line up with everyone else's expectation. You might see them as being kind of lazy or they weren't pulling their chain towards this final solution. Then this guy was actually running a business on the side while he also worked at Hewlett Packard. Well, I was 
Woz, as in Steve Wozniak, the future co-founder and true technological maestro behind Apple. And two other engineers decided we were going to get back at this guy. We thought, well, you know what? His office is too big. Just too big for a guy like that. Every other weekend, someone would come in and move his cubicle walls in imperceptibly, an inch or two. And there was carpet on the ground, so you had, it wasn't just moving the walls. You had to rub out the indentations from where the, the panels were. And we had to do it just a little bit at a time. We, this went on for weeks. And I think we actually grew impatience with him being able to understand that he was being pranked. And so one week we actually moved the cubicles in far enough where he could not physically withdraw his chair from his desk and get in. And he had to climb in over the top. And that was the prank that got us to see the boss's boss. It was an exciting time. I look back in my job history and as much as I like previous jobs, this was probably the most rewarding work experience I've ever had. The reward came from the fact that it was hard work and hard play. It was irreverent and serious. The thing that made HP just a wonderful environment to work at, they were always interested in keeping your, the engineer's attention at the highest level. No matter what you were working on, if you had an itch to explore something on an emerging technology, they would sponsor without any formality. It was called a G-job. A G-job was an idea that you had on your own, that you came up with, and that you did the principal amount of development. You did the work. If you needed to bring other people in, you did. But you did this under the full realization that you were using HP parts from lab stock. I, as a mechanical engineer, could go down and use the machine shop. I could get materials there for free. And so throughout that process, many people had a G-job. Was at that time, had a G-job also. He wanted to design a computer that he could do some programming on. And so he had this computer that he built up over time and it was hardwired, what they call wire wrap. All the ICs were in sockets. It was on a, a vector board. It was allowed you to make a quasi-circuit board, not a printed circuit board, but a circuit board. And he wired it up and everything and basically created the operating system for it and all of the hooks that he needed to be able to program and to run some very simple programs. Well, we, our work group, but Waz especially, wanted to take this either to HP management or he wanted to have it as his own. Well, the deal was that HP, if you had a G-job and you used HP facilities and materials, etc., you had to give them the right of first refusal. So I remember very clearly the day that uh, Waz went into a room with his computer and he demonstrated it to management and management's management, a lot of bigwigs in that room. And I can remember the smile on Steve's face when he walked outside the door and he exclaimed from across the room, they don't want it. A decision HP surely regrets to this day. Waz then partnered with Steve Jobs and his invention would eventually become the Apple One. It would revolutionize technology. Before the Apple One, 
Personal computers came unassembled. They were sold in kits that the customer had to put together, and they operated with lights and switches, essentially unusable to the average person. The Apple One would change everything. One day, serendipity would have it, I received a call at work from a fellow that I once worked with, and his name was Steve Wozniak. And we had a quick little chat. He said, we're doing some fun stuff here. Why don't you come on down and see what we're what it's all about? I went and interviewed, talked to a bunch of people, and a few days later, I get a call with an offer of employment. Here, I was working at the Holy Grail in Silicon Valley, Hewlett Packard. And what do I get from Apple? I get an offer, which was compelling, but darn if the salary wasn't quite what I was making at Hewlett Packard. And to me, that just seemed wrong. It didn't seem right that I should leave an established institution that most people would die for to work at and to go to a startup with no history, an unknown future, and an unknown work environment. So I phoned up Dr. Tom Whitney, who was the guy who was running engineering. He had just been hired. And I told him in a very impassioned plea that I really wanted to come work for you, but it just seemed wrong that I would have to take a salary cut. And by the way, I think the salary cut was like under $200. It's comical to think about that now. And he reminded me, he says, but you know, you get a stock option here. Back to being naive. What did I know about stock options? I didn't know anything about stock options. I, I knew what they were and I knew how they kind of worked, but I had no idea of the economic power that they, they could yield. So I said, yeah, I know about that, but it just doesn't seem right. We parted kindly on the phone and about three or four hours later, he gives me a call back. He says, we'll match the salary that HP's giving you and you still get to keep your stock option. So I said, great, I'm on board. So the day comes that I'm going to report to Apple. I go there. It's a casual place. You know, you're not suit and tie there. You're, you're jeans and slacks and polo shirts and, or t-shirts. And I park in the parking lot and I find the entrance to the place and I sit down in the lobby and there's a station for the receptionist, but there's no receptionist. There's a lot of people milling in and out, in and out. No one's saying any word, but it's like, it's like a beehive. I see a woman come out, sits at the desk. She doesn't even talk to me. I just kind of sit there and I'm thinking, well, pretty soon someone's going to come and see me. And after sitting there probably a half hour, a very kind of scruffy looking guy comes in to see, he says, uh, you, you have any business here? And I said, yes, I'm a, I'm a new hire. He says, what's your name? And I said, Richard Jordan. And he goes, well, who are you working for? And I told him the name, the fellow's name was Rod Holt. And he says, oh, Rod. He says, well, what are, you, what are you gonna do here? And I says, I'm in the engineering department. He says, well, get up off your go in there and start doing some of that you do. Uh, he said, the engineering department's down that hall. As he pointed down past the reception desk. I didn't recognize him, didn't know him, but I quickly learned that that was Steve Jobs, who told me essentially to get off of my butt and start working if I was an employee. And when we come back, more from Richard Jordan. And what an extraordinary story. An engineer, and by the way, engineers in this country, we need more of them. We need more people studying STEM. And my goodness, it's the, well, it's the difference in our future, not whether we can continue to create more Richard Jordans. 
and push the envelope on technology and science as it relates to every aspect of our society. But again, these are human stories, and these companies don't just come and spring from nothing. When we come back, more with Richard Jordan and the story of him hopping from this giant HP to this restless little startup called Apple that nobody knew anything about. More of this remarkable story, this life's journey of an engineer turned, in a way, an entrepreneur here on Our American Stories. And we continue now with our American stories and Richard Jordan's story. He had just made the move from HP to Apple just as they were marketing their very first product, the Apple One. Let's get back to Richard and the rest of his story. When I first started Apple, Steve Jobs was a very powerful influence. He didn't have the experience and the gravitas that he had in later years, but he was a very determined, opinionated, and forceful individual. And one of the things I learned from him that I started getting introduced to at Ampex, one of my earliest jobs, followed by HP, was the whole notion of industrial design. How important the holistic view of product development is to success. And Steve Jobs was that guy. He was the guy who built a fence with his dad in his backyard And the father, when he went back to look at how the boards looked on the back side of the fence, the side of the fence that his family would never see, he told his son when he asked, what are you worrying about that? I don't know exactly what the answer was, but it was important. It was part of, it was part of the design. It was part of the success of that fence. And Steve took that same sort of philosophy to Apple And he was the most forceful advocate I have ever met regarding the importance of industrial design to product success. And when Steve left in 1984, I stepped into a new job because I worked for a fellow by the name of Jean-Louis Gasset from Europe. And basically, Jean-Louis ended up running engineering. And I was, you know, plucked from the, the candidates and put into the job of basically running product design. Now, product design at Apple meant that you were controlling from the concept of the idea out to the manufacturing floor. I did not write software. I did not have control over that, nor did I do the hardware, which is the development of the circuit board. But it's sort of everything in between and on both ends, I was, that was my Uh, purview. That's the things that I focused in on. John Louis was a marvel to work for, and he impressed upon me very early when we had many, many discussions, how important the notion of product design was, specifically industrial design. It was a process that was respected at Apple. However, things happen and people move on. Uh, John Louis left and Over the next year or two, 
the importance of it seemed to be losing its significance. And I could just see on the horizon the new people being brought in just didn't share my same belief about product design, industrial design, etc., that both Steve Jobs and Gasset had shown. And the notion that industrial design, product design was not going to be revered, it was much more of a financial sort of discussion or, or control, bureaucratic control of the product design process, I bailed. Apple was no longer a startup. This is something many companies go through. As they become bigger and more corporate, the heart and the soul of the enterprise often fades away. Richard moved on to other tech startups, like how Apple used to be. He helped pave the way for many emerging technologies, from digital directories found in malls and airports to video phone calls. Richard stayed on the cutting edge and now considers his success as an engineer a result of serendipity and preparation. Louis Pasteur has a quote which I really like and I've taught it to my kids, which is, luck favors the prepared mind. And that's how I view my life. For most of my career, I thought of myself as I was in the, in the driver's seat. I was in command here. Things would happen when I took the appropriate action and that the outcome was determined by the effort that I put into something. But nothing would prepare Richard for what too many families go through. His mother was diagnosed with dementia. When my father was alive, he and I had many long talks and we had decided that as long as possible, my mom was going to remain in her home. That would be my childhood home. And so I was prepared to do anything to make that happen. And when you've got a dementia patient, uh, they're not safe by themselves. It's from anything from taking your meds to preparing your meal to remembering to turn the stove off to, to getting around town and, and carrying on a life that makes you happy and, and makes you seem like you're fulfilled. And so that was a, that was, that's a tough balance to maintain. But the challenges were just holding together your life. Remember, I have a family and kids and a job and, and my mom doesn't live near me. So whenever I would step in and, and uh, give the caregivers a little relief, it was a big dislocation to how I operated my life. And it was a lesson in how to manage things, make decisions about people's lives. I'm very used to making decisions about inanimate objects, uh, products, and how you get them to market, how you design them, and how you get them tooled up and ready for manufacturing. That all I've done for decades, and I'm comfortable with those decisions. But now, when my mom is sick, I have to step up and make very personal decisions about her life. When to take the car keys away from her. That was a big deal. <laughs> And I've talked to many people who've had parents that they've had to do that. My mom felt as though I was taking her freedom away for her. While doing those kinds of decisions, you have to fill in the, the, the blank spots that are formed. You have to make their lives seem as normal as possible. So you have to sort of redouble your effort. There was little solace in, because the things I wanted to do for my mom had no effect on her. Uh, or minimum effect. I couldn't fix her problem. I couldn't make her life happy. I couldn't bring back her memory. None of those things. And that gives you pause for thought. 
When you spend time with people with dementia, you understand very quickly how powerless you are. A realization that brought Richard closer to Christ. I realized that there was a much larger influence and force in my life that was going to dictate how I performed and how I felt about myself. And so I think faith allowed me to step back from the problem and look at it in the larger picture. Richard had a lot on his plate. Though he still insisted on being present for his wife Sandy and his children. I made a, a pact with Sandy early on. I said I could be here in the morning or I could be here in the evening, but I'm going to be here. And I was very concerned about being an absentee parent, you know, there but not there enough. And so what my role, and I, I was, I'm very comfortable with getting up before dawn. And so my, all my professional life, I've always been at work as the sun rises, so I could be home for dinner at night. And dinner at our house didn't mean everyone got a plate and went to their room. Dinner at our house was around the family dining table where we talked about stuff. We talked about what happened at school and to world hunger and the war in Iraq. I mean, they were well-versed in the current events, both at a macro and a micro level. Richard jokes that he's given too many, quote, sermons to his children over the years. One of them is about the success that he has both experienced and witnessed. It's about reliance on the individual. You're not a victim. I've taught my kids the, the value of, of hard work, resolve, and follow through. You will accomplish the effort you put into it. This has been a sermon that has been repeated to them for 30 years. The most valuable people I had in any organization that I ran weren't the ones that were the smartest, that had the highest IQ, that had the most degrees. That's all very helpful and very useful. The most valued people you can have are the people who know how to take an idea, a thought, an initiative, and they know how to drag it across the finish line. And what great storytelling by Richard Jordan. And he was there at the beginning of one of the greatest companies in American history, and that's Apple. And he said of Steve Jobs, he's a forceful advocate for the importance of industrial design to a product's success, and no doubt that's true. We spent an hour talking to Walter Isaacson, and it's a terrific hour. It's on our website. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. We also have that great Steve Jobs speech at Stanford where he talks about dropping out of Reed College and dropping back in and taking a calligraphy course which gave him a great sense of design and beauty. And so both a great industrial design, but also a just beautiful phone to look at and operate. What everybody's now copied or tried to copy what Apple created. And what a story this is about free markets, about American entrepreneurialism. This man left a behemoth, Hewlett Packard, to join this little startup. And what did it was, well, just your curiosity. What the heck? Let's build something new. And the stock options didn't hurt. And by the way, any of us could have owned it any time along the way, including now, a share in Apple stock. And all of this created this remarkable product, a computer in our hand that takes pictures, plays music, unimaginable and completely out of reach of kings 20 years ago. And now in the hand of every kid in America and kids around the world. But the best part of this story was the personal part. He found out in the end, 
Some problems can't be solved. And when his mom got sick, he was there. And it was really tough. And in the end, this all brought him closer to his faith. And this is a main theme here on this show, that faith and science are not incompatible. Not at all. This is a myth sold by many people, but it's just not true. This was an engineer who came closer to God. And by the way, always there with the family around the table, talking about and teaching the things that matter in life. Hard work, resolve, and follow through matter more than sheer talent. In the end, the talent is getting an idea across the finish line. Richard Jordan's story, his family's story, Apple's story, and so much more here on Our American Stories. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification. Which we can't fake. And vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below. Which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now once we get down the shaft though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well... Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around so he's able to go on the trip, but his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those and he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. 
Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed. The metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now. And the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. And that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and... uh I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2, the one in the movie. And he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was. And I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it. And it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels, it had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar. So I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem, well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. 
And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot, and I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story, Nate Scott's story, here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. Alright, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. But 
they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only going to take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror, and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. Anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr? (laughs) Wow. Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good, I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow and you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down the line. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Maddox gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Maddox walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that hold other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! Over to Blake. Blake leads it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! What a shot by Wayne Gretzky! 
If there wasn't a Marty McSorley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg and he speared Gretz and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down and I really hit him hard. Almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes up. Now I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings, three o'clock. You've got to go fight the toughest kid in the school on the playground, and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping. The night before a game, and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're... 10, 12 years into the league, you've had your shoulder fixed two or three times, you've broken your hand a couple of times, there's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you, he wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. Words at the edge of the circle, and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to, that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash the stick in the face, the cross-check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here. And for anybody who loves the sport, well, you're loving this. And for any of you who don't and just have any casual acquaintance with the sport, which I did. I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York. But I always wondered, why all the fights and who are these guys? Well, let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler. Here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers. Some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers. Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policeman for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analyzing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skilled players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers... He wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky, I mean, he had Semenko and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What, what do you think Greg Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you. And if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that... I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career, because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. 
So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them and and their owner had said, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up. Because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could do it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's what it dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was, like, that, that, that uber-violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had to pull them all of hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. 
As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives, the story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same with in hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sports. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. 
I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than, you know, to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fight's also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaForge spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL. But after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one -on -one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer's stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that, that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain 
on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves, the Enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the Enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the Enforcer defends, we would love the Enforcer because the Enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an Enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ Enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in, to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. 
Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself, and uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement, but we wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcer stories. <laughs> 